Welcome to the Kumbaya Podcast, the whole woman's resource, where we uncover the amazing resources available to help you on your holistic health journey and hopefully help you prevent issues before they arise. Hello and welcome back to the Kumbaya Podcast. I hope you're all doing well. If you're listening to this live, you'll know that we took a few weeks off. I had my mom visiting in town and then one thing led to another and life just happened. So we're back at it today. Um, this week, we are revisiting a previous episode I did with Heather Edwards. This was a wonderfully insightful and interesting episode where Heather and I talked about several different topics related to sexuality and sexual well-being. So it's an excerpt from episode 18. So if you want to go back and listen to that original discussion for even more information about Heather's background, um, you can do that. You'll also learn more about Venu and vulvas. Before we play the excerpt, I'd like to tell you more about Heather because they are such an incredible wealth of knowledge and a fantastic person. Heather Edwards, she, they pronouns, has been a pelvic physical therapist since 2003 and is an ASECT certified sexuality counselor as well as a sex educator. They achieved their dual certificate at the University of Michigan Sexual Health Certificate Program. They founded Vino and Vulvas in 2015, and it quickly became their favorite thing to do. They have presented at numerous physical therapy, sex therapy, educational, OBGYN, intersex advocacy, and transgender conferences, and teaches for Pelvic Global Academy on the topic of trans-inclusive sexual and pelvic health. As the COO of Pelvic Guru, LLC, they create and curate collections of illustrations and handouts that are provided to interdisciplinary pelvic health providers. I am a member of Pelvic Guru, so I can attest that all their work is amazing, and I just love being a part of Pelvic Guru. They have a series of courses that addresses specific sexual psychosocial aspects of medical care called Clinical Blind Spots. They provide community sex education live and online as Vino and Vulvas and Bubbles and Bubbly. In addition to education and clinical work, Heather is an artist, illustrator, and author of the coloring book series, Coloring Books for the Crotch Enthusiast, an illustrated story about a nine non-binary vulva, Finding the Joy Joy, and most recently of a novel, June Full Moon. Her latest is erotica that is pelvic health informed, consent focused, and models emotional and emotionally intelligent dialogue as a new platform for her sex education work. Yes, please. That sounds amazing. The topics we covered in this excerpt included some of the sexual health issues that Heather helps with in her pelvic physical therapy practice, a vocabulary review for sex and gender expression, and what we can learn from the structure of BDSM and more. This is... Um, these are questions that I get all the time in my practice and from people I talk with. So I wanted to re-air this episode because Heather does such a beautiful job in describing all these things, um, defining these things, and just really doesn't make you feel stupid for not knowing <laughs> it if you if you don't. So I just I had to share it again, guys. It's she is such a delight to talk to, and I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thanks. For those of us who don't know, and um, can you explain what's the difference between a sex counselor and, you know, is that different from a sex therapist? 
Yeah, that is that's such a good question because it is a little different when we're talking about sexuality stuff to kind of understand who is what. Because when we get into like like if someone is going to look for a sex therapist, you know, that can mean a lot of different things. I don't even think that people necessarily think of that as like meaning a mental health professional, um, you know, and there's a lot of people who are, you know, sexologists or clinical sexologists or somatic sexologists who don't actually have any sort of like like mental health training they might just have like a phd in sexology which is fantastic and really great but it's much more of an educational role um so as far as the difference between so we've got counselors therapists and educators Mm -hmm. so um a a sexuality counselor is going to be someone who has a medical degree okay so if there's someone who's done more extensive training in um in sexuality services that it has like a physical therapy degree or a, um, or a physician or a PA or nurse practitioner or nurse, anyone like that, they're going to then fall into the category of sexuality counselor. Mm -hmm. And then anyone who has a mental health degree, um, which gets confusing because those can also be counselors, right? Right. You know, that have like a mental health counseling degree. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, anyone with a mental health degree then becomes a sex therapist, And then um, the educators are the ones who don't have a medical or a mental health like license to treat people, Mm -hmm. but are still doing education. And, you know, and a lot of them will still work with people one on one, but it's all just kind of like like one on one education discussion sort of stuff. Right. So super helpful. Like, you know, all three of those are, you know, really important and it's really fun when we can all work together. Um, But another like kind of to, to break down the difference between sexuality counseling and sex therapy as well. Um, as far as anyone who feels like they would maybe want to do the sex sexuality counseling, but is a little nervous about like, Oh my gosh, but that sounds like so much like extra stuff to deal with Mm -hmm. that. The difference is that the, the mental health professionals do the intensive therapy things. So, so if someone comes in and they have a big, history of trauma or it's like a lack of trust to be able to get back to being have being able to have a sexual relationship with their partner or things like that mm-hmm. like that's the stuff that that goes more towards sex therapists right, right? Okay. but if it's like people just need specific suggestions on how to understand how their own body works and how the partner's body works and how to work together and some exercises to work on being able to make things work together again, like counselors can do that. So we can do all the education and kind of specific, you know, um, suggestions, but we can't do like the, tell me about your childhood stuff. So with the sex counselor is like whatever the medical degree is of the person who got that counseling degree, do they just kind of work the counseling degree into like their practice? Is that exactly? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so it's not an additional degree licensure certification or it's a certification. Um, But the thing is like, so with the university of Michigan, it's a certificate program that you go through. So so I have a dual certificate in sex education and sex counseling, but I'm not nationally certified until I actually go through and do the, um, ASECT, who is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, they have a big, a big amount of things that you have to go through and be able to check off this big list and then go through a year of supervision 
Um, and it, the hours and all that depend on if you're a counselor, an educator, or a therapist. Uh, but you have to go through and do all of that and then apply for certification. Um, and then, you know, if you're approved, then you actually are certified. So I hold a certificate, but I am not yet certified, but hopefully will be within the next couple of months. Oh, great. Good. So you're already yeah. working towards that. That's excellent. Yep. Yeah. Super neat. Um, so do you feel like being trained as a sexuality counselor has changed the way you treat your pelvic patients? It is, it has changed everything. It's been really fantastic. Um, I feel, and I think one of the, one of the big ways that I, I think that I, I feel like I've, I'm a much better therapist now than what I was before mm-hmm. is because I went through this program where the vast majority of the people in the program were mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. So as we're doing all of our practice and learning together, because we're learning a lot of the same stuff that they are, you know, and they're learning a lot of the same stuff that we are when it when it comes to both the medical and the um, and the psychological side. But the being able to understand trauma and the effects of trauma so much better has been really, really helpful for me to not just like, you know, because, you know, when we screen and say, you know, do you have any sort of history of sexual trauma or unwanted sexual experiences or something like that? I don't feel like we're always, we're necessarily trained to know what to do with that if they say yes, right? you know? Um, And so I, I really enjoyed being able to go through this program to where now I feel like when that comes up, like I've got all sorts of ideas. I've got like, I know what I'm going to work off of. I know what kind of conversations I'm going to have with them. I know kind of where I'm going to go and where I want to make sure that like, I really affirm them and, you know, just the things that I do a little bit differently, but then also understanding that so many people have trauma that even if they don't answer that, yes, they've had some sort of trauma that it still might be there. So just kind of having those ways of really being intentional and more gentle and careful around lots of topics, um, is good. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that was good. What are, um, what are some of the commonalities that you see most women dealing with these days? Like thinking specifically of sexual health, um, with sexual health, I was kind of just like go back through my Rolodex of my last few weeks of patients, you know, when I'm thinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know how accurate of a sample this is, but, <laughs> <laughs> but as far as what I've seen a lot of lately, and it's actually a, a kind of demographic that I really enjoy working with mm-hmm. is the, the women. And I, I live in North Carolina, so I am and. I live in Asheville, but I work in Haywood County, which is um, kind of more conservative than Asheville. Asheville is a very liberal city. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like I kind of need to specify that because working in Asheville and working in Haywood County are two very different animals as far as patient clientele in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, but I tend to see a lot of patients now who are like who were brought up in the purity movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, you know, waited for marriage until they had sex and then they tried to have sex and then it was painful and then it didn't work. And then, you know, they end up seeing me, you know, months, years later when they still haven't been able to have sex. Um, and that's really what they want. But like by that time, you know, there's become so much like difficulty communicating and resentment and, you know, not trusting your body and feeling broken and all of these layers, um, wrapped up in it that, that there's, 
there's so many steps to take with it, but I really enjoy working with that population. And it seems like I've seen a lot of those lately, um, as far as sexual health stuff. And, you know, that's just me in particular, but I also see a lot of people who have never had orgasms before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily that's why they're coming in to see me, but a lot of times once we do the full screen, like that comes up and they would very much like to fix that if possible. Yeah. Um, Huge quality of life, you know, it's like, Hey, we're going to be doing yeah. this anyway and wanting to connect with our partner. Why can I not yeah, go the extra little bit and get that pleasure myself? Right. And, you know, and I think especially it kind of, it hits in the place too, where there's like, I see a lot of, um, and the, everyone I'm talking about here is all um, cisgender women as far as who I've worked with, mm-hmm. with these specific things. Um, but I've also seen a lot of, you know, women who have been having sex for a long time with their, you know, partners for, you know, that they've been with for years and years, but it's always hurt. You know, and so they're just finally now either it gets to the point to where they want to talk about it or they come in and see me for urinary incontinence. Mm-hmm. And then once we talk about it, they're like, oh, you mean it doesn't have to hurt? You know, <laughs> novel idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, wait, wait. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's so many things. Yeah. It's well, but I think we just need to make T-shirts, Amanda, that yeah. say like, you know, no, leak, like leaking urine is not normal and neither is pain with sex. I yes. think everyone would like be stopping us on the sidewalks being like, what? Wait, who, yeah, exactly. In what country? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. I totally agree. And, you know, I've only done, um, you know, worked in pelvic health physical therapy since I've lived in the South. So I don't uh-huh. know the difference. Like I, I come from Connecticut, so I've never worked in New England Um but I definitely see it in the South. And I think it would probably be the same in the North, too, you know. It's, like yeah. you said, is that Puritan kind of – and I've even had patients tell me, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go home and yell at my mom because she kept me saying my knees had to be together and everything's tight down here. And, like, they're just taught to, like, keep their legs so close tight. It's interesting yeah. to see how you, you were raised and just these thoughts about sex and about your body and how that can have physical ramifications down the road, you know. Yeah, for sure. And and I agree with as far as the demographics. I feel like I've always practiced in the South as well, mm-hmm. you know, and while I definitely I see a lot of, you know, differences, but, you know, there's a lot of the same stuff going on everywhere. Right. But um, but yeah, as far as where I am, that's what I see. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree. With, I see the same thing with my practice, too. So it's nice to know I'm not alone and you're not alone and and yeah hopefully helping people so <laughs> um so you're teaching several courses on transgender pelvic health this year and I know earlier this year you presented on that topic at combined sections meeting so um tell us how you got into trans pelvic health uh trans pelvic health um it was it was kind of fun though. Yeah. I don't, the, I guess the, the answer is I don't fully know. Like usually the assumption is, you know, that, Oh, well, you know, someone who's trans, there's something personal to you or you're trans or something like that. Right. But like I didn't. And, um, and this has kind of always been my pattern. I think that I'm one of those people that like the way I work is that if you tell me that, there's something that works really well for 98% of the population. I want to know what the experience is like for the other two, mm, you know? Yes. And so, so that's just always where I'm looking. I'm always looking, okay, who's getting left out of this equation and what is that experience like for them? You know? Um, and that was what led me to, to trans health, you know, because as a, 
pelvic PT. I think, I think there was kind of like a little series of events that happened for me where it was probably like I, I had a couple patients in a row who I'd seen for like, it was like a hysterectomy and like a bladder sling that had some, you know, pretty dramatic, uncomfortable things that were going on since their surgery, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and and it, and I think that there, I kind of had like that, and I was just like, oh my gosh, like, and really think about thinking about our missions as pelvic PTs, and how often we're trying to keep people from having to have surgery when they don't need it, you know, and then like becoming more aware of trans stuff at the same time, and especially trans people who are having bottom surgeries, mm-hmm. and you know, and then when I was like, oh my gosh, like it doesn't seem like we're seeing them, and it seems like pelvic PTs should be like like we should be their go-to people, right? you know, as far. And so, and I, and I looked around and there was like nothing to be seen. Like there was no, no courses, no acknowledgement, nothing that was happening with it. And so I was just like, well, not on my watch, yeah. you know? <laughs> so I just kind of started learning more about it. Um, and, and Asheville has a pretty big LGBT population. Um, and so we do have a lot of trans people here. So I, you know, I do have friends that are trans. I have a heck of a lot more friends who are trans now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it was like, you know, I did kind of, I had a little bit of experience, like of just knowing people and knowing a little bit of kind of what was difficult for them, but it wasn't like we ever dug into conversations about their genitals or if they'd had bottom surgery or anything like that. But, you know, just kind of having those, those aha moments when you realize like, oh my gosh, like what's going on. And, you know, and back when I was start first learning about it, like what was happening often for the surgeries, like there wasn't really anyone in the U S who was doing them, like maybe just a few but they were so expensive so what most people were doing was flying to thailand and then having their surgeries in thailand and staying there for like a month and then flying back and then not having any medical care to follow up with like a completely completely altered genitalia wow and i'm sorry that's not a short flight right i mean right i know like even just sitting on like a vulvar surgery a month after a massive surgery for, you know, an, you know, 18 hour flight or something, <laughs> you know, it's just, wow. it's pretty crazy. That is crazy. So more people are doing it now in the United States, right? Yeah. There's a lot more um, doing it in the United States and there's, um, and, and Canada too. So, so it's nice that people don't have to travel nearly as far um, to get the surgeries, but you know, there's still obviously lots of different, you know, financial barriers and things like that to it. But but yeah, there's a lot more people, um, just, I think even in the five year in the past five years, or even just in the past couple of years that are now offering, um, a, a gender affirming surgery. How has that, or do you feel like that has changed the way you do all of your work working with the trans population? I mean, yeah, I would say kind of in that same way of, um, of working with, or kind of like understanding more about like trauma informed care, mm-hmm. I would say, and you know, and also kind of in this time frame, um, I also kind of came out as queer myself. So uh, you know, where I kind of really thought I was straight, and then I you know really kind of realized ah, I'm not as straight as I think I am, mm-hmm. and then understanding a lot more about that. So just understanding more about kind of like 
queer world and LGBT issues and things. Um, you know, that's also sort of been part of my background with this also. Um, but yeah, but I think so for, so for an example of me having an experience and I very much look like a cisgender woman. Like if you meet me, see me, there's not anything that would make you think, Oh, she's gay or she's, you know, queer, she's trans or anything like that. Um, you know, but I, I do identify more like non-binary or gender queer, but I feel very comfortable in my body as is. And, um, and it's, and that's okay for me. Um, and so, for me going in to see a medical provider, it's, it's like, you don't understand the, or you don't necessarily see the narrative that, that like our society puts on us as yes. women yes. until you don't feel like you fit that narrative and it's being forced on you anyway. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this sucks, <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's like, how many times do I need to tell my gynecologist that, you know, that, I only have sex with women now for them to stop telling me that I need to get on birth control and giving me pregnancy tests. Yeah. Wow. You know, but it's like that that's the standard of care, right. you know. They just assume, and, right. Right. And you know, and I understand that there's re- there there's lots of different reasons of why they do that, but but it sucks like being on the other side of it because you feel like you're working with someone who doesn't see you right. and who doesn't understand your needs and is not going to listen to what you say. Yes. You know? And so, um, so I think having that experience and then understanding how I potentially am inflicting that experience on others for all sorts of different reasons, whether it's race or gender or orientation, like I don't want that to be part of my story with people. Right. You know, I don't want that to be the experience that they have with me. So, um, so when someone comes and works with me, you know, as far as what I've learned from all this is that, like, I really try to let everyone unfold their own, own narrative. Like, I'm not ever asking, you know, oh, so, you know, do you have a husband or do you like I'm not ever trying to assume anything about the number of partners someone has, what their sexual behaviors are, um, you know, what their what their relationships are like, what how they think of their body. Um yeah. So, I mean, I, I just, I try to open it up a lot more. Um, and then that works well. And it, and it's really nice when you do end up with people who are not used to that. And like they do identify as, you know, bisexual or genderqueer or something. And they realize that that's who they can be with you yes. in a room. And that's often the first time they've ever had that experience in a medical office, right, with a you know, Right. And it's, it's kind of neat because even, you know, for even trans people, you know, a lot, a lot of practitioners will be like, oh, well, I don't get trans patients who come to my practice. And it's like, well, if it's like a trans woman, but she still has like her driver's license insurance still has the her, you know, the name that she was given at birth. That's more of a male name. She's probably or I mean, it might be that she's just more comfortable coming in for what feels like her like dressed as drag you know in her boy clothes for the day Mm -hmm. so she doesn't have to go through the whole experience and you know explaining to everyone Mm -hmm. like what the deal is and just uh, just uh, completely avoid that whole thing but that doesn't mean that as you're talking to you know this woman about like you know her penis and you know and talking to her like she's a man with a penis and putting her in cisgender heterosexual you know category that like that that's a good experience for her at all that's right. you know that just makes you not want to ever go to the doctor mm-hmm. 
you know, so, so, you know, I think that like, if we, the way that we see people like making any assumptions based on how we see them is, is kind of dangerous as far as like our, our, the credibility that we get to have, like we, they still need to be able to unfold their story regardless of what we think it might be. Yes. So yeah. let's, and you've said a couple of things in there that I want to kind of step back and almost do like a little, um, vocabulary review or a little explanation. Okay. Yeah. So let's go through, cause you've mentioned like a trans woman or cisgender. So if we can kind of go through some of those terms, kind of explain what they mean. Um, so everyone's kind of on the same page. Yeah. Um, so, um, for anyone who I, and I always remember this from organic chemistry. <laughs> so the, the prefixes, the Latin prefixes, cis and trans. So cis means same and trans means different. Okay. okay. So if, and so then we kind of use the terms like assigned at birth sort of thing. And so if you were assigned male at birth, it's, based on what your genitals looked like okay Mm -hmm. if you're assigned female at birth it's based on what your genitals look like Mm -hmm. um and so if someone is assigned female at birth and then continues to identify like their brain identifies as female as they're growing up and as they're adults and they're like and that is how they feel they are then they are cisgender they're they have the same gender identity as the gender they were assigned at birth. Okay. Okay? Mm -hmm. So if someone is transgender, that just means that they were assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth. And we'll go with female just for the example. So someone is assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. And then as they grow up, they are maybe as a child, maybe they're identifying more as I'm going to grow up to be just like my dad. Or, you know, I'm a boy, you know, Um, but, but not everyone necessarily realizes that when they're a kid. So I don't want to put that, you know, narrative on it, but that's right. But, but some do. Um, and so then as they get older, you know, it's like there, there's sometimes it's just, it's that thing that they're closeted about, but really they feel like they're, they're male, you know, or they're, they're a boy and that's the world they should have been in. Um, and so those people would be considered a transgender. Okay. Okay. And now can I add another? yeah. So is that a trans man? So like female at birth going to a man that is trans. Right. So, so when you use man or like man or woman, mm-hmm. that is the gender identity. Okay. okay? okay. So if I am a trans man, mm-hmm. that means that I was assigned female at birth okay. and then I transitioned to male. Okay. Okay. So you, so you might have two people who are sitting there, you know, with, beards and look very masculine and one is a cisgender man and one is a transgender man but they both identify as man got it okay Okay. but one might have a penis and one might have a vulva right okay okay um yeah and then so and then another little thing and so this is another layer and i know sometimes when people are trying to wrap their head around cis and trans and then you throw on this layer it's like ah, i give up but I think it's a, it's a good thing to kind of understand um, is binary and non-binary. Okay. Um, and this and I, I really kind of love this concept because I feel like it's kind of like the breaking us all free from from like, you know, from expectational junk that we grow up with. Yeah. So um, so binary means that you kind of fit into a system that means that there's there's male and there is female. Okay. 
so that there's those two options for how you go through the world. It makes sense. Binaries too, so or bias too, right? Exactly. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Right. So binary means male and female. Now, cisgender people can be binary, right? Yeah. You can be a woman or you can be a man, cisgender. You have the genitals that, you know, you identify with and your your gender as well. Mm-hmm. But trans people can also be binary, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. these are the people who, like, if you think of, like, Laverne Cox and, like, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, you know, people who they went from, you know, being assigned male at birth to very much fit into they are a woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So, so they went from one box into the other box. Got it. Okay. So, so that's binary. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so cis people can be binary and trans people can be binary. All right. And then there's Mm non-binary. Okay. So non-binary are the people who say, I see that you think these two categories are the ones that exist in this world, Mm -hmm. but I'm telling you they're not. And I don't fit in either of those boxes. Mm, mind blown so what's what yeah what's what else is there like there's anything you want to be see like so from there like the boxes don't exist right so so these are a lot of times people who identify as non-binary will um you know use like them they pronouns like Mm -hmm. so instead of using she her or he him Mm -hmm. you know they'll you know the pronouns they'll use is they they and them um, and then in the, I mean, there's, I, I, if you look up the list, like, you know, there's like Demi boy and there's, you know, there's, yeah. you know, gender queer and there's, or some people just call themselves non-binary. Yeah. Um, but there's all sorts of different versions of it. And, you know, and then you can imagine there's like, you can look any way you want also. Right. So it's basically just saying, like, I see what you're trying to push on me with the narrative of what it means to be a woman or a man. And I'm not down with that. That's so freeing. So, yes. Right. Yeah. So it's not like, okay, I'm a woman. I have to wear pink and exactly keep up the house you know where it's basically like i I totally get that so could we say this like a modern man someone who's in touch with their emotions and they can do housework but they can do yard work and they play sports and they cry at movies and And, you know they're in touch with it yeah right and maybe they're just fine with painting their fingernails and occasionally like want to put on lipstick and that's all fine you know yes got it so there's so many different versions of what non-binary can be um so it's like it's not even like to even try to define it as like not possible right right? because there's infinite (laughs) there's infinite possibilities is what you yeah you imagine oh that's so cool okay Mm -hmm. i totally okay i totally get that now what about um you've enlightened me in the past a a little bit. So maybe we can touch on this now Um, about intersex. Is that like, um, yeah. Yeah. Let's go into that a little bit. So, so that's kind of the other interesting layer when we're talking about um, the, especially like the assigned at birth thing. Right. Right. Um, It seems like when you say assigned at birth, it's like, okay, well maybe that's just a term that seems like it's, you know, that the, the queer community made up, but really everyone's just biologically one sex or the other. Mm-hmm. And that's completely false. Right. Um, you know, so uh, there were, I think usually what I see approximated is it's like 1% of the population, which is huge, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's a lot of people. Um, 1% of the population is, um, has some sort of intersex variation. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that can mean, again, 
a huge amount of things. Um, many people who are intersex don't realize they're intersex. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are, you know, it, so if there's someone who is assigned, you know, female at birth, and she has a vagina and she has a clitoris and she has a vulva and, you know, she develops, she goes through um, female uh, adolescence um, and puberty and then, you know, grows up, identifies as a woman and then is trying to get pregnant and then uh, can't get pregnant. It's trying to figure out why. And it's because she has actually testes instead of ovaries that are undescended. And it's because she, um, uh, is androgen insensitive. So at the point where her body would have actually said she's got like XY chromosomes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the point that her body would have actually started to create the, the, the masculine um, features, right. that, that didn't happen, right? Yeah. Because the creating the female features is actually everyone's default. Yeah. And so a special cascade has to go off in order to um, get the, the male features to happen. And that didn't happen for her. Because her body wasn't sensitive to it. Okay. So, um, you know, so examples like that, you know, because when we look at it, we simplify it in like politics, right? X, Y equals man, you know, penis equals man. But like, there's so many people where that does not apply. And, and so it's so silly to break it down like that. And so, you know, people get so self-righteous about, well, there's really only two. I know biology and XX and all this. And it's like, oh, there's XXY. There's, you know, there's there's so many variations. And then within all of those different, you know, genetic chromosomal variations, their bodies can look so many different ways as well. It's not like this genetic variation is going to yield this physical body. Right. Right. So, so there's all sorts of variations, but guess what? When Mm -hmm. all of those people are born, they still get assigned female or male at birth. Right. Mm -hmm. So like the gender that they were assigned at birth might not, or I guess it's more of the sex that they were assigned at birth, which then if, you know, assigning a gender at birth means that your parents are committed to making you that, to socializing you in that gender, which, you know, is may or may not be the gender you actually identify with. But, um, but yeah, so the sex assigned at birth might not even be accurate. You know, and a crazier thing is the way that they actually assign sex at birth. It has nothing to do with the presence or absence of a vagina. It only has to do with the length of the phallus, right? Mm -hmm. So if someone has ambiguous genitalia, Mm -hmm. it's like, and I don't remember the the number, but if their their phallus is greater than a certain amount, then it's considered a penis and they are assigned male at birth. And if it is less than a certain amount, it is considered a clitoris and they are assigned female at birth. Wow. Right. So like all of our genders assigned at birth or, you know, sex assigned at birth for, for a lot of people, that's still a complete load of crap. Yeah. Right. Do you think that could ever change? Like, so when babies are born, we, we talk about them and they or them, you know, we don't use she or he kind of thing. And then when they start going through puberty or when we start, you know, they start being able to tell us how they identify. Do you ever see that like becoming a reality or? I hope, I mean, it is for more and more people mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot more people who are, you know, that that's just kind of, they just wait and see. They don't really push anything on their kids and just kind of let them grow up with all the variations and doing how, you know, do what they want. And, yeah. um, and just 
see where it falls. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like I've done that with my kids for sure. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And it seems like they both, like they were both assigned male at birth and they both seem to identify pretty male, you know, and you know, but we've had the talks so like, they understand what trans is and they understand all these things. So, you know, it's not like, I don't feel like they would just necessarily be like, hiding something you know and how old are your Um, kids if you don't mind asking uh they're eight and eleven eight nice okay cool when did you start like when did they learn about trans and when did you educate them on all that oh gosh a long um i've been educating them about like you know about their bodies and and whatever and when like even when they were itty bitty like and we'd start using the words like, you know, penis and, you know, scrotum and um, testicles and all that to help them understand their bodies. Mm-hmm. I was always educating them on, you know, and that, um, you know, little girls have a clitoris. And so, you know, and their clitoris feels good for them to play with, just like your penis does to try to help close the pleasure gap. Right. Yeah. You know, um, but to make sure that they always understood that the, the, the counterparts to what they're, you know, pretty like standard cisgender sort of anatomy is all right cisgender wasn't the right word there mm-hmm. but what their 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 typical male anatomy is that the the what the typical female anatomy is is very similar and what the analogous parts are and it is just as important and valid yes um and so then kind of as they got older then we would start kind of having the conversations a little bit more you know about you know how babies are made and how this happens and then we would talk about you know just because you have these parts you know your what your gender is like if you feel like you're a boy or a girl is actually in your brain mm-hmm. um and so the the then most of the time what your brain and your genitals are match but not always you know and so for you know kids where it doesn't match that can be kind of stressful and challenging for them especially depending on how you know their friends and their family treat them about it but you know this is what that is and I had such a funny sweet little moment with the boys they were probably geez maybe like five and eight or something Mm -hmm. and my five-year-old was he's definitely he really likes things to fit in boxes like he likes checklists and he really likes categories yeah. <laughs> so, so sometimes when I am like talking to him about some of the stuff he always has to do like it kind of you know wait 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 and has to be able to like chart it all out you know exactly whereas my older son like he just gets it like you just explain a, a concept to him he does not like to have checklists or boundaries or anything on anything yeah. so like he can just do that free association you give him a concept and he can run with it and so my five-year-old was like okay mom let me get this right so only um women have babies right and my eight-year-old says well parker and trans men (laughs) oh yeah he like got it immediately yeah he got it right Uh and so then we were discussing how like you know being able to have a baby is a function of having a uterus and a you know a uterus Mm -hmm. basically yeah and so like who are all the people that we know of that can have that have uteruses you know and are they all women no they're not you know there's a lot of transgender men who have babies or non-binary people who have babies and so not everyone who has a baby and is going through the you know pregnancy and postpartum classes and steps and care and all that identifies as a woman 
Yeah. You know, there, there's another fun thing, right? What yes. do we make our spaces look like for pregnancy and postpartum? I know. Wow. Definitely not encouraging for men to be there. Right, right. That's a certain. Wow. Yeah. This is this is all great. And then we haven't talked about it that much, too, but I know since um, you're just so knowledgeable of all of this, and this kind of leads into your vino and vulvas, which I do want to talk about next. Can you remind me, what does BDSM, what does that stand for? Uh, BDSM. Uh, yeah. So this, it's like one of my very favorite things to talk about, like for so many hilariously vanilla reasons, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I love it. I love the structure of BDSM. So, mm-hmm. so what it is, is it's actually, it's actually BDDSSM, okay. but it gets kind of shortened to BDSM. So it's bondage and discipline. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then it's domination and submission. And then it's sadism and masochism. Okay. Okay. So when we're just looking at BDSM and people are picturing like the leather and the spanking and the whips and the, all that, like, yeah, that's BDSM. Right. Okay. It's kind of a, most of like the scariest things we think about that people do sexually mm-hmm. generally fits within that category. Okay. okay. The thing I love about it so very much is because there are all these very smart, amazing people who understand their erotic selves, they have created such a beautiful structure for sexual communication. And I use this with patients all the dang time. I don't always tell them that I'm teaching them BDSM. Um, for some of them, like if I figure that they'll enjoy that, you know, yeah. then I will. But for a lot of them, I, I, I don't. But it's the... In order to do something really dangerous sexually, you have to plan it. You have to have a discussion with it. You have to know, you know, how it's going to go. You have to know how you're going to get out of it, how you're going to communicate when it's working well and when it's not working well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just even to be able to find the person that you're going to be able to do that with, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's so many levels of really hardcore communication that have to happen mm-hmm. to be able to create the desired experience. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so, so I love that because, you know, when you have someone that's got pelvic pain, right? right? Like all of a sudden you've got a person that has, you know, these are my definite yes lists, right? These are my definite no lists. And these are my maybes depending on how I'm feeling list. Okay. Right. Yeah. So that essentially you turn that into a BDSM list, right? right. To where you don't then have to, like, you're always picking off of the yes list. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but the way that we think about sexuality now is like the baseball diamond thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like first base, second base, third base, home run, and it's not sex unless it ends in penis and vagina intercourse, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, And so BDSM does not operate like it's a it doesn't even have that as part of the way that it it functions at all, right? Mm -hmm. With BDSM like everything counts as sex, you know, like, are you doing it to kind of meet your erotic needs? Are you entering this situation or, um, you know, this like, I don't, you know, a scene is kind of sometimes what it's called, but just like a sexual encounter, you know, going into a sexual encounter, knowing what you want from it, Mm 
Mm-hmm. And then, you know, figuring out how you're going to get that out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I mean that in a way that's like so basic as of I want pleasure out of the sexual encounter. Right. Like for our, our patients too, who have pain or issues like that, like they want to not hurt. Right. You know, they want to be able to have this intimate connection with a partner or partners. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so breaking it down in that same way of like, you know, what, you know, works, what, you know, doesn't. And then how are you going to communicate that before and during, and then how are you going to follow up with it after, you know, the encounter? And so this is great. Like, I just love that there's this really fantastic dialogue that's already created Mm -hmm. that we don't have to reinvent the wheel for all of our patients. We just have to realize that like, you, you know, not be scared of, the, the 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 more scary stuff, I guess, and learn from it of what what they've all figured out so beautifully. Yeah. So, it sounds it's like it's, cool. it's a model for really good communication and good boundaries. You know, so. it it absolutely is, yeah. and that's like, and it's funny, like in BDSM workshops, it's kind of this, you know, sometimes this joke about like, you know, the way that like heterosexual people tend to like meet and decide to have sex is usually like intoxicated. Totally. Yeah. Right. You know, like what the heck? Like, Mm -hmm. so there's no discussion about what's going to happen or what sort of protection or what sort of barriers or, you know, any sort of like actual consent. If you're already under the influence of some sort of substance anyway, like, you know, it's so backwards. And so that, that version of sex, I find much more dangerous, (laughs) you know, than what, the people in the kink and BDSM communities are doing. Do you ever wish that you could learn the essentials of pelvic health from an experienced pelvic floor physical therapist at a fraction of the cost and from the comfort of your own home? This episode is sponsored by Progressive Pelvic Education, your source for online courses to expand your pelvic health knowledge and promote optimal wellness. Pelvic health is wealth, and there is a lot of essential information about our pelvic floor that isn't taught in school. Learn what to do and not to do to avoid the inconvenience and pain of pelvic floor issues in a self-paced course you can take anywhere. Visit progressivepelviceducation.com to get access today. This content is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. Please discuss any questions you may have regarding your health or medical condition with your physician or a qualified healthcare professional. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests.